listeners, today's bonus is a lecture I gave at Australia Lutheran College in Adelaide, South Australia, in what I was just about to call the summer of 2023, except it was actually winter at the time. I just can't wrap my own Northern Hemisphere mind around an August winter. Anyway, I was kindly invited to speak at the Parkville Plus seminars jointly hosted by several divinity schools in Australia by the absolutely lovely and wonderful people of Australia Lutheran College. The topic is a real knee slapper, three 19th century German Lutheran saint calendar proposals. Fun stuff. And now, here's the lecture. All right, good afternoon. Okay, and hello everybody online. Uh, And thank you so much, Michelle and Anna, especially for the invitation to be here um, for um, globally-minded Lutherans like us. The idea of finally getting to visit the Australian Lutheran world was very exciting. Of course, we began by seeing the vineyards because we know that that's really the core. Of, uh, of the ex- experience here. so, But I'm very happy to be here also now at the college and have a chance to share our work with you. So I'm talking today about three German Lutheran saint calendars of the 19th century. Um, it's uh, part of a longer term project. I'm working on the veneration of saints in evangelical Lutheran practice and theology over the past five centuries. So this is kind of a Um, for sharing with you today an episode in this longer 500-year story. About 20 years ago, I visited Wittenberg, Germany for the first time and discovered the hagiographical impulse. It happened fittingly at Martin Luther's grave at the Castle Church. I hasten to assure my fellow Lutherans out there that I felt no desire to pray to the Reformer, but it was impossible to resist the feeling of awe and gratitude at coming so close to the mortal remains of a man who had lived half a millennium earlier and yet had made such an impact on my faith and piety. Hagiography happens among Lutherans and other Protestants too. So given that incontestable fact, it behooves us to do it well. For the last number of years, and probably for a number of years yet to come, I have been slowly working toward a historical and theological defense of the practice of evangelical Lutheran hagiography. Some periods are extremely well documented. The 16th century, of course, as Luther and his colleagues set out to replace medieval hagiographic practices with evangelical ones. And the 20th century as well, for the simple reason of dramatically increased state persecution of believers. The 17th through the 19th centuries are not particularly well studied in this regard, though as far as I can tell, these are neglected centuries in all areas of Lutheran historical and theological study. I think of them as our unloved Middle Ages of Lutheranism. However, I have been fortunate enough to stumble across three 19th century German saint calendars. To be more precise, they are proposals for saint calendars, revealing a felt need to draw more attention to biblical saints and certain biblical events, but also to acknowledge what the Lord has been doing in the church since the close of the apostolic era. These three calendars are intriguing, moreover, in that they emerge from different parts of Germany and represent different theological and spiritual commitments on the part of their authors, while also being in critical conversation with each other. 
So the first one we're going to look at is Ferdinand Pieper's improved evangelical calendar. Our tale of three calendars begins with Ferdinand Pieper, theologian, church historian, and museum director, who in 1844 was commissioned by Prussian King Friedrich Wilhelm IV to revise and update the church calendar. For every annual volume of the Evangelisches Jahrbuch, from 1850 to 1869, Pieper furnished a calendar of commemorations, a project that culminated in a detailed proposal for a new and improved calendar in the Evangelisches Jahrbuch of 1870. The result is a meticulous and thoughtful defense of singular saints, the importance of church history, and the relevance of both to the life of the contemporary church. In his explanatory preface, Pieper openly acknowledges that his is a synthetic and creative work. He examined a wide variety of local church orders and calendars, including some dating back 300 years. He was attentive to both North and South German preferences, and he even studied Catholic calendars. That was a pretty big thing then. One of his goals was to establish a commemoration or festival for every single day of the year. And that meant the occasional doubling up of a commemoration, not to mention the movable feasts within the church year, with the result of 399 distinct commemorations. So unsurprisingly, Pieper's first concern was to establish the church festivals of Christ's life that enjoy pretty much all but universal acceptance. He retains the traditional Lutheran and broadly speaking Western Christian festivals, including the retooled Mariological holidays of Annunciation, Visitation, and Presentation. He also proposes some more unconventional choices for commemoration, such as the boy Jesus in the temple, the first sermon of Jesus, the first miracle of Jesus, and Jesus' descent into hell. The real burden of Pieper's book, however, is to defend both the fact of commemorating the saints of the church and his individual choices of saints. Anticipating the concerns of his uh, ideal audience, Pieper makes the tactical move away from the term saint, highlight it drawing on the standard Reformation insight that this word applies to all the faithful and acknowledging the standard concern of Lutherans at how this category has been abused so that he prefers the word witnesses, Zeugen, instead. A witness, according to Pieper, is primarily a prophet or eyewitness of Jesus Christ, but secondarily included in this category are those Christians who made a risky confession of faith, even to the point of death, namely blood witnesses, or Blutzeugen. Well, a theoretical basis for a calendar of commemorations is all well and good, but how does one actually make the selection, short of opprobrious Roman methods? Pieper knew well the tradition of Reformation-era calendar revisions, such as those by Melanchthon, Hondorf, Major, Flatius, and Rabus, who are all mentioned by name. So Pieper can justify his calendar renewal based on the fruitful ideas of the Reformation and on apostolic grounds, in his own words. 
So on this basis, Pieper insists that pre-Reformation figures pose no problem whatsoever, since with these saints of the undivided church, there continues to exist, quote, an inner connection in the contact of faith and love, end quote. But what of non-Lutheran candidates for commemoration after the division of the church, including Catholics, the Reformed, and members of the smaller free churches. So here is where Pieper makes his first significant departure from the assumed standards of Lutheran hagiography to date. Pieper argues, and I quote, Firstly, the calendar in the Protestant sense does not aim at all to list the persons only as those who thought correctly in the doctrine of the faith. There will always be, just as there are sinful people, so also erring people, for only one has been without error and sin. The only thing that matters is whether the individual has received the anointing, and this has been witnessed in his works, such that streams of life could have poured forth from him. Then this testimony outweighs human error, which one rebukes when one knows better, so much more in that the personality goes beyond categories of understanding and doctrine. By such recognition, indifference to doctrinal concepts and the narrower church and confessional community is by no means encouraged, for there are different levels of Christian and church community." End quote. Let's just say Philip Melanchthon would not have thought much of this approach. But it does signal a remarkable anticipation on Pieper's part of both ecumenical urges toward mutual recognition and the difficulty of coming up with an adequate theological reason for doing so. Pieper's new standard sounds generous and faithful, but remains difficult to assess in any given case, to say the least. What can a Lutheran theologian possibly mean here by anointing? And can people really be invoking works over doctrinal fidelity? From there, Pieper turns his attention to ethnic and national diversity. While self-evidently composing a calendar for German Protestant usage, Pieper insists that there should be no prejudice or indifference toward figures from other times and places, though also that there should be no artificial assumptions about an equal distribution of witnesses. So, for example, the ancient church boasts people mainly from Asia Minor and Rome, while the Reformation era concentrates its saints in Germany and Switzerland. Yet, even here, Pieper says, any candidate for the calendar must have qualities that will upbuild the whole Christian church, not only local pride. Issuing Catholic canonization procedures, this comes up a lot for Protestants who are defending saint veneration, and harking back to the evolution of the calendar out of congregational commemorations of blood witnesses, Pieper argues that, quote, a scholarly procedure is needed first of all to determine suitable names in the first place and to bring their series into the form of a calendar based on purely evangelical interest. So now Pieper turns to his specific criteria. 
The earliest apostolic church and the planting period of local churches receive first consideration because they are the time of first love. To this, Protestant churches rightly add the Reformation era as their own time of first love. But for the calendar to avoid becoming a dry and dusty document of church history, it is also important to Pieper to include figures since the Reformation. He notes that at his time, living memory, as mediated through those alive in the youth of the currently living, stretches back to the last decade of the 18th century. The era of, as Pieper singles out by name, Kant's Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, 1793, and Schleiermacher's Addresses on Religion, 1799. In other words, Pieper really wanted Kant and Schleiermacher to count as Protestant saints. Moreover, since the early church placed greatest honor on blood witnesses, Pieper does the same, boasting that the Protestant church has had blood witnesses of its own, though he tactfully omits at whose hand. Pieper also uplifts the great range of stations in life, including among his saints, the Georgian slave girl of the fourth century Christiana, also sometimes known as Nino or Nina, and the laborer Raymond of Piacenza from the 12th century. Age range is also important to him. Bishop Simeon of Jerusalem lived to be 120, and Pothinus among the martyrs of Lyon to 90, while the confessor Discoros was only 15, and Agnes, a favorite of Luther's, a mere 12 or 13 upon her martyrdom. And, interestingly, even Luther's daughter, Magdalena, who died at the same early age, gets a day on the calendar as an example of, quote, early perfection and blessed departure, end quote. Now, for all Pieper's reflexive criticism of the Catholic canonization process, he is aware of the work of the Bollandists. These are Catholic scholars who undertook a historical critical investigation of the saints in a movement parallel to biblical historical criticism. Concerned for the sake of faith to weed out wildly implausible or excessively pious saint legends, the Bollandists concluded that several popular saints unfortunately never existed at all. Some of these would actually ultimately be removed from the Catholic cal calendar, though not till the second half of the 20th century. Pieper takes up this same question, but comes to a perhaps startling conclusion. Uh, here again, a long quote. A departure from the historical character of the calendar, however, occurs when names within ancient tradition, but without a historical basis, such as those which belong to legend, are taken up. There are some names of this kind that one would omit from the evangelical calendar only unwillingly. It is to be explained from the outset that they do not come from history, but from religious poetry. The ideal truth of poetry may stand in for the missing historical truth. Awakening thoughts are imparted in the form of history. Why should our church, if it finds these same things there, puritanically spurn them, end quote. Pieper therefore proceeds to defend the seven sleepers martyred at Ephesus in the year 250, as well as St. George, St. Sebaldus, and St. Christopher, 
that last one, in no small part due to Luther's warm endorsement of a saint that he too assumed to be fictional. Then Pieper turns to another category of commemoration, namely of historical events beyond the life of Christ. The Council of Nicaea in the year 325, commemorated on June 19th, is unsurprisingly endorsed, though Pieper's reasons smack rather uncomfortably of Prussian fusion of church and state. He says, uh, in defense of the Nicaea date, Firstly, the period of persecutions was over, and a friendly relationship of the church with the state was established. Secondly, that the period of territorial particular churches was over, and the Christian church in its unity and universality also appeared. Other self-evident choices for people include October 31st, altogether now the posting of the 95 Theses, April 18th, Luther at the Diet of Worms, June 25th, the presentation of the Augsburg Confession, and September 25th, the Peace of Augsburg. A rather more surprising, not to say alarming, choice for September 8th is the conquest of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple by the Romans in the year 70, which event, Pieper says, quote, is based on feelings of the prophecy of Christ and intervening in the whole development of the apostolic church, so it has a right not to be passed over in the calendar." End quote. And not only that, but Pieper adds on July 15th a second memorial of the conquest of Jerusalem, this time by the Crusaders in 1099, quote, as a monument to the enthusiasm that caused the Crusades. End quote. This collection is rounded out with the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, commemorated on October 17th to recall the persecution of the Reformed in France, and on August 21st, a commemoration of the launching of the first Protestant missionary work by the Moravian Brethren in 1732. Now, from this extended theological justification of a Protestant calendar, Pieper moves into a discussion of the mechanics with elaboration of his sources both ancient and recent. A comparison of Catholic and Protestant calendars, deliberately showing the commonalities between them rather than the differences. The selection of dates, especially when there is overlap or the death day of a given witness is not known. And Pieper's own labors along with his colleagues over the foregoing 20 years. That it was and was always intended to be a collaborative effort is highlighted by the friendly reception of the calendar by Theodor Fliedner in Kaiserswerth, of whom more in a moment, as well as Pieper's agreement to include St. Francis at the request of the blessed Joachim Neander and the removal of Philip of Hesse, that's right, the bigamous guy, at the request of the Berlin and Rhine province. At the very end of this Evangelisches Jahrbuch for 1870, Pieper furnishes a brief assortment of Lebensbilder, life pictures, inviting readers to dive more deeply into the lives of significant figures of the faith, starting with Adam and Eve, in addition to studies of biblical events contributed by Pieper as well as some other scholar friends, such as Jesus' descent into hell and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, these biographical sketches cover the lives of church father Ignatius, 
Emperor Constantine and his mother Helena, the late Reformation-era French Protestant Philip of Mornay, the 17th century Lutheran theologian Heinrich Müller, and the English Puritan Richard Baxter. Pieper clearly hoped his calendar would be formally adopted by the church. It was not. The Eisenach Conference of 1870 rejected the request to recognize it officially as the evangelical calendar. For all that, it did become the basis for the calendar printed annually in the Preußischen Normalkalender from 1873 to 1922. Not one to be deterred, however, Pieper went on to publish in 1874 and 1875 four volumes of detailed Lebensbilder drawn from his calendar in books called The Witnesses of Truth, Life Portraits for the Evangelical Calendar for All the Days of the Year. And these profiles were organized chronologically and written up by a wide variety of scholars. So that was Ferdinand Pieper. Well, Pieper's Prussian and pan-Protestant calendar did not go unchallenged. Two alternatives to his annual Jahrbuch and its eventual consolidation in the 1870 edition emerged from opposite ends of the German lands, and moreover from the two major centers of diaconal ministry in evangelical Lutheranism. Theodor Fliedner, who I mentioned earlier, a Lutheran pastor based in Kaiserswerth, just north of Dusseldorf on the Rhine, is not as well known today as his Bavarian counterpart, Wilhelm Löhr. I do not see a library dedicated to Fliedner on campus here. But he was, in fact, the starting point for deaconess ministry in the Lutheran churches. Fliedner's major and massive contribution to Lutheran hagiography was four volumes published in Kaiserswerth from 1849 to 1859 under the title Book of Martyrs and Other Witnesses of Faith of the Evangelical Church from the Apostles up to our time. The subtitle states its purpose, to strengthen the faith and love of our evangelical Christianity. This is clearly the case, though more than one polemical purpose is achieved in the process, as we shall see. Fliedner introduces the first volume with standard evangelical Lutheran throat clearing for even broaching the topic of martyrs, witnesses, and saints. He writes, the Son of God does not need any human witness, for he himself is the faithful and true witness. However, for the sake of our weakness, Christ gives us other human witnesses who reflect back his glory just as the moon reflects back the glory of the sun. Fliedner continues, quote, and although the Lord demands such witness from each of his disciples, most of them bear it more in silence and secrecy through a pious transformation depending on the vocation that the Lord has given them, end quote. Fliedner also makes a point of confirming that the doctrine of justification lies at the root of his doctrine of sanctification. The pious witnesses are able to fight the good fight because they have already been clothed, quote, in these garments of his righteousness which have been given to them by grace, end quote. 
In this manner, those who have been sanctified, geheiligte, are called to sanctification, heiligung, and therefore receive the name of holy or saints, heilige. As the apostles of the Lord called all believing Christians in their epistles. Fliedner continues, we look at their lives and sufferings full of gratitude to the Lord, who has so purified the unclean, weak vessels and made them so strong, and let their example encourage us to follow their faith. End quote. Okay, so far so familiar. Fliedner then goes on to comment that the first three centuries of the church were especially rich in Christian witnesses since they fought so hard against, quote, the blind unbelief of heathenism and the Pharisaic superstition of Judaism, end quote. And again, three centuries preceding his own time during the battle of, quote, the old pure apostolic faith against the unbelief of the papacy, end quote. The function of remembered saints now is to shore up faith. And here again from Fliedner, thus when the waves of misery rise up, dear reader, when the heat of tribulation has made your heart faint, look at these examples of suffering and patience and the light that shines from them to you as a reflection of the light of Golgotha will revive your soul as the dew of dawn revives the withered fields. Fliedner further advises sharing these stories with one's children in order to inspire them to love God and serve neighbor, showing them, quote, how Christ shall take form in us, that we might be transfigured into his image and suffer as good fighters for Jesus Christ, end quote. One way to do that is to use this calendar to learn the verse of the day, the name of the day, and the corresponding story of the witness commemorated. Incidentally, Fliedner also adds that doing so will arm you and your children against the heresies of the Roman Catholic Church and other religious parties and sects. A decade, uh, excuse me, a decade later, with the publication of the originally unanticipated fourth volume of this collection, Fliedner offers further reflection on his hagiographical project. After a few extra Lebensbilder, he includes two appendices. The first was motivated, quote, by several mocking attacks on our Book of Martyrs in Roman Catholic journals, namely on our alleged presumption that we counted such important church fathers as Ignatius, Irenaeus, Cyprian, Athanasius, Ambrose, Chrysostom, Jerome, Augustine, etc. End quote. In keeping with the numerous appeals to the early church fathers scattered throughout the Book of Concord, Fliedner claims the ancient origin of the evangelical church in the time of the apostles and cites Reformation teachings as having precedence in the whole foregoing history of the church. He then rattles off 11 principal doctrines of the evangelical church and the historic figures who supported these doctrines long before Dr. Luther came along. And in addition to the expected Lutheran standards, Fliedner particularly singles out for mention the rejection of the invocation of Mary and the saints, but also the affirmation that Mary was conceived in a state of original sin and the rejection of the veneration of images of the saints. 
The second appendix is less polemical in nature, adding on a short biography of some important witnesses of faith in the Old and New Testaments, whose memorial days are still in our Protestant calendar, namely those of Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, the seven Maccabees, Simeon, Anna, the Holy Innocents, John the Baptist, Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of Jesus. Peeper, remember, notably omitted any Old Testament figures, so this was perhaps a deliberate corrective. Philebner also includes entries on some but not all church festivals, namely Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, the Circumcision of Our Lord, the Epiphany, the Transfiguration, and St. Michael, that most persistent angelic saint, always in favor among tr traditional Lutherans. To me, Fleeter's most surprising objection is to what he calls the Roman All Saints Day, which our church cannot celebrate, he declares. Instead, for November 1st, Fleetner provides the reader with, quote, a short refutation of the Roman heresy of the veneration of the saints, their relics, and images, and of indulgences, end quote. Paired then more positively with a biography of an Anglican missionary to India, Henry Martin. Coming at the end of four volumes, gigantic volumes, of life pictures concerning witnesses to faith, this does seem a bit like protesting too much. No one can possibly accuse Fliedner of advocating the invocation of the saints. And as far as I can tell, all saints continued to be observed in many, if not most, Lutheran churches from the 16th century onward. Anyway. After again commending his work for the raising of pious children and reminding the reader that evangelical saints do not, like the Roman saints, want to shine in their own light and merit, but only, like the planets revolving around the sun, borrow their brilliance from its light, also from the sun of the spirit alone, <sighs> Fliedner proceeds to explain his desire to limit his choices quote, to the purely Protestant witnesses of the faith of the church as befits a Protestant book of martyrs, end quote. He therefore omits the remarkable men of the Roman and other Christian denominations who might otherwise be included if one were writing a universal church history. Indeed, that seems to be the best praise Fliedner can summon for Peeper's calendar, for at this point, Fliedner explicitly contrasts his work with his Prussian counterparts. Fliedner, in fact, details at length the figures that Pieper included, that he himself deliberately omits, and likewise those that Pieper failed to include, whom Fliedner deliberately brings to the reader's attention. Nor does this conclude Fliedner's criticisms of Pieper. He disapproves of Pieper's moving commemorative dates away from the saint's heavenly birthday. Like Pieper, Fliedner finds it desirable to furnish witnesses from all the nations of the earth, but this is not license for compromising on doctrine. Quote, because we are only concerned with truth, truth for godliness, the strengthening of faith, and love for our evangelical Christianity as the title says, that it may become more gratefully aware of its great privileges in pure doctrine before all other confessions, with the corresponding duty to pray for the enlightenment and sanctification of Babylon the Great, the mother of whoredom on the seven mountains, 
an illusion that requires no dispensationalist fancies to decode. The essay wraps up with thanks and acknowledgments to the many co-workers involved in this project and a prayer of God's blessing on the effort and grace toward its editor. Now, the contents have already been alluded to in the foregoing review of Fliedner's two explanatory essays, but a few further comments are worthwhile here. His first volume st starts with the Apostles and Martyrs of the New Testament. Then, in a curious overlap with Pieper, Fliedner commemorates the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, though not, this time, the Crusaders' destruction of Jerusalem. Many martyrs of the Roman Empire follow, along with early church fathers, uh, old if fictional favorites like St. George, St. Christopher, and the Seven Sleepers of Ephesus, confessors and other witnesses throughout the Middle Ages, and finally proto-Reformation figures such as the Waldensians, Wycliffe, Jerome of Prague, and the Bohemian and Moravian Brethren. Volumes two and three deal almost entirely with Reformation-era witnesses, organized by region, so volume two opens sensibly enough with the earliest witnesses and martyrs, Vos, Eschen, and Thorn in the Netherlands as the first martyrs and confessor of the Lutheran Reformation. The tally then proceeds to other early martyrs and witnesses, including Tauber, Weibel, and Kaiser in German-speaking lands, Hamilton in Scotland, Martin Luther with a 64-page entry all to himself, Melanchthon, Zwingli, a rather surprising choice for an ardent Lutheran-like Fliedner, Butzer, Elizabeth of Brandenburg, and Argulof and Grumbach together in one entry, couldn't give the women two separate ones of their own, I guess, and Brents. Regional groupings take over at this point. Spain earns 17 entries, some of which list more than one person. Italy, 16, including a standalone entry on the Inquisition of the Roman Catholic Church. France gets 36 entries, including Calvin, many martyrs, and some historical events. England gets 26 entries, including Tyndale, John Rogers, Lady Johanna Gray, Hugh Latimer, Thomas Cranmer, and several other women. Last of all, in volume two comes a grab bag with Elizabeth Countess of Braunschweig-Luneberg, Margareta Blarer, and Johann Margrave of Brandenburg-Kustrin. Volume three then opens with the Reformation in Scotland and 16 entries, including John Knox. Fliedner, being evidently ill-informed about or unimpressed with the large Lutheran churches of Scandinavia, Sweden receives its only notice with reformers Olav and Laurentius Petri. Meanwhile, Norway, Finland, and Iceland go entirely unremarked, Denmark but minimally. The Bohemian and Moravian Brethren are covered up to 1670, with three entries including the 27 Martyrs of Prague and the pedagogical reformer Comenius. Next follows the persecution of the Waldensians since the time of the Reformation with 10 entries, and evangelical martyrs in Portugal with two entries. An extended section deals with the evangelical witnesses of Hungary and Transylvania, mostly Slovak Lutheran pastors heavily persecuted in the 1670s and 80s, which reached a resolution only with the 1781 patent of toleration under Habsburg Emperor Joseph II. After another series of late-remembered, quote, still other evangelical martyrs and confessors in Germany from the century of the Reformation, including Sparatus, Winkler, and Justus Jonas, and, quote, something about the martyrological suffering of evangelical congregations in the Rhinelands in the 16th and early 17th centuries, end quote, 
The list again turns to the grab bag. We've got Primus Truber, reformer of Slovenia, scientist Kepler, martyrs of the Netherlands, and still more persecutions of French Protestants into the 18th century. Franciscus Allard, reformer in Northern Germany, Gustavus, Gustavus Adolphus, the persecution of evangelicals in Silesia in the 18th and 19th, 17th and 18th centuries, also of the Salzburgers, also of evangelicals in Zillertal, the martyrs of Madagascar, John Williams, the apostle of the South Sea, a few more medieval saints that he suddenly remembered, like Odile and Olaf, a few monarchs, Bullinger, Katharina Schutzel, Beza, another strange choice, a handful of pietists, such as Arndt, Spener, and Franke, missionaries like Ziegenbalg, uh, and Thomas van Westen, uh, and Hans Egede. The final odd assortment that rounds out volume four before the appendices are also mission-oriented. This is an emerging category of Lutheran saints we start seeing in the 19th century, such as um, missionaries to the West Indies and Greenland by the Brethren, John Wesley, Christian Friedrich Schwartz in India, David Seisberger in North America, Oberlin in rural France, Wilberforce the abolitionist, and the English prison reformer Elizabeth Fry. Fan of Pieper or not, Fliedner seems to have taken the point about producing a smaller and more manageable companion to his four-volume exhaustive study. It is questionable, however, whether he achieved this goal with his 1865 short book of evangelical martyrs since it runs to 1,300 pages. Arranged according to the evangelical monthly table of the Kaiserswerth Christian folk calendar, it furnishes excerpts from the previous four volumes along with 100 illustrations. The selection of witnesses is the same. Okay, then we turn now to southern Germany. And another founder of deaconess ministry, as well as a liturgical reformer, who mounted his own alternative to Pieper's calendar. Wilhelm Löhr's tactic, however, departed dramatically from both of his contemporaries, and indeed from virtually all formal hagiographic calendars in the history of Lutheranism up to that point. As Lyra declares enthusiastically in his introduction to Martyrologium on the explanation of traditional calendar names, he says the calendar itself ought to be considered a marvelous tool and window to the wider world. It teaches people the rhythms of nature, but also of history, and nothing less than the doctrine of sacred time. The holy hours, the holy days, the holy weeks, the holy months, the holy year. Biblical history and catechism are united in the observance of the liturgical year and its rhythms, which in turn teach the sanctification of every moment to Christ. Derivative of this holy time is the commemoration of saints. Lura echoes a commonplace of evangelical saint veneration, quote, Christ was the sun that ruled the day, and at night, like a starry sky, the multitude of Jesus' holy heroes shone. The calendar of saints became the starry sky that moved around the sun. Not only the history of Christ, but also that of his church could be presented in this way. The church was the moon that ruled the night, and with it came and went his children, the saints. The history of the church was revealed in the celebration of the memory of its most glorious members." End quote. From there, Lyra details some of his practical efforts to create and teach 
from a calendar in the Deaconess community in order to convey both sacred time and a deepened sense of church history. But he also hopes and suspects that such a calendar could be useful beyond the borders of Neuen Dedelzau. He suggests, for example, pairing the daily reading from his martyrology with the Herrenhut Losung of the day as a delightful double breakfast. Even short commemorative entries inform and whet the appetite for further study. The pedagogical approach thus far is entirely conventional for Lutheran hagiography. But this is where Lehrer dramatically departs from his own tradition in deciding to rule out all post-Reformation figures entirely. For all intents and purposes, Lehrer simply deletes the implicit struggle between Pieper and Fliebner by restricting himself to the saints of the undivided church, overlooking, of course, the Greek Syriac schism following the Council of Chalcedon and the Latin Greek schism of 1054. But we'll leave that out. Lura's complaint is that he could discern no clear principle for selection or rejection of post-Reformation candidates. He writes, the Protestant calendars generally follow the Catholic ones, although with exceptions and a certain diversity of choice for which I could not find even one rule and one principle. If we could ever shed light on the change and choice of Protestant calendar names, and the relationship of the Protestant calendars to the Catholic ones, I would be sincerely grateful. But as self-evident as a Protestant choice of name has seemed to me here and there, so little have some of the others pleased me, and rule or measure I have found nowhere despite the application of faithful effort. If I find it, I would be quite happy to admit my ignorance." End quote. Pieper's extended discussion of his criteria had not yet been published, so perhaps Lura could not make sense of the name that appeared in that Yabuch, of which he was well aware, giving explicit credit, credit as he does to his Kalenderfreund, Herr Dr. Pieper. But basically, Lura sees no solution to the calendar problem after the Reformation. Again, a quote. There is a huge partition between before and after 1517. And it will probably be best if we do not mix the names of the new and the medieval times until further notice. But it is even less suitable for Lutherans to present Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, etc., next to and behind each other. We have no church rule or canon for our own people. How can we canonize our most separated opponents? End quote. Medieval personages are possessed of such great Catholicity, Le Avers, that they are not to be eliminated as heretics from a Lutheran vantage point, but held onto as points of agreement. Lura further observes that time softens judgment, such that figures of imperfect doctrine, so long as their ethics are unimpeachable, are subjected to milder judgment as time passes. Even the fathers of the Lutheran church, quote, obviously treated the pre-Reformation differences with more leniency and recognition of the communion of saints than the ecclesiastical differences of the post-Reformation period." End quote. Le is hopeful then that God will give more light and clarity in the time that follows and with it more ability for a calendar judgment that is pleasing to God. He reports ruefully on the Tractatio de Martyrologio Romano by Caesar Baronius, which states outright that one of its motivating factors is, quote, 
a red-hot passion of hatred against Protestants, end quote. But Lura cannot deny the red-hot passion of hatred on the Protestant side against Catholics either, of which we have seen some evidence. And he regrets that, quote, the time has not yet come when the same passion for God's word and truth will lead to a way of neighborly peace on both sides, end quote. Lura himself takes a cautious step toward uniting post-Reformation Catholics and Lutherans on the same calendar by permitting Luther to sit alongside Teresa of Avila, Francis de Salle, and Vincent de Paul. Still, he admits to being careful not to include certain arch-Catholic names for the sake of not annoying weak people who will be angry with me that I have included Francis of Assisi and Teresa of Avila. Even so, Lura has no choice but to make his own choices, even of the pre-Reformation names. He says, since I myself made here and there, from the fitting names, a different selection than the usual one, I believe myself to be doing nothing but what others have done before me, and to have the same right to my choice. He acknowledges a strong preference for figures from the Bible and for women the latter because of his work with and on behalf of deaconesses. Indeed, the most striking thing about Lyra's calendar, other than its deletion of post-Reformation saints, is his broad inclusion not only of minor New Testament figures, many women among them, but also a wide swath of Old Testament figures, though considerably fewer women among them. Yet Lyra evidently saw no need to defend this decision, despite its extreme rarity in Western saint calendars. He assigns a date starting with January and moving chronologically to December for Abel and Seth together, Enoch, Abednego, Sarah, Solomon, Amos, Daniel, Aaron, Esther, Tobit, Elisha, Jeremiah, Haggai, Isaiah, Ruth the Moabites, Elijah, Isaac, Samuel, Rebecca, Moses, Gideon, Jonah, Abraham, Abraham, Adam and Eve on Christmas Eve, per tradition, Jonathan and David side by side on December 29th and 30th, respectively. Excuse me a moment. Lura also certainly made good on his promise to furnish his calendar amply with women. The category of virgin mar martyr predominates, a traditional feature of Christian hagiography, though there are also queens, empresses, abbesses, widows, and penitents, for a total of 72 named women, plus a few unnamed female companions of others from church history. A few last items on Lura's calendar are worth noting. First, as promised, Luther does appear, but not on Reformation Day, or his birthday, or St. Martin's Day, all of which have served the purpose, but on his death day of February 18th, a date that Luther shares with Simeon, Bishop of Jerusalem. And he gets the notation Ecclesiae Doctor. Though if the Lutheran Church cannot canonize its saints, on what grounds does it get to elevate someone to this lofty status? Lua doesn't explain. Perhaps he concluded that the confessions themselves weren't and granted. Also, while Lura, thankfully, omits the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, he does add two specific events of church history, the discovery of the true cross in 329 on May 3rd, and the exaltation of the cross with its return to Jerusalem in the year 629, September 14th, Holy Cross Day. 
As for the traditional commemorations, Lura retains of the archangels not only Michael on September 29th, but also Raphael on October 24th, both of them printed in bold letters to indicate a level equal with apostolic commemorations. Although for some reason, Gabriel on March 24th appears in regular typeface. The Lutheran approved Mariological festivals of Annunciation, Visitation, and Purification are preserved, but to these are added the birth of Mary on September 8th and the Assumption of Mary on August 15th, though neither of these receive the distinction of boldface type. Last but not least, Lura is apparently undeterred by the qualms that caused Fliedner to dismiss All Saints Day from his own calendar. Lura rehearses its history, starting, strangely enough, with pagan monuments up through the church's developing practice of remembering its own. He concludes, quote, the Lutheran church, which can be no enemy of this thought, which is right and beautiful, retained it, if not universally, because such things were left to freedom, yet very often one can celebrate this feast with its glorious texts to great edification and advancement wherever one disposed to it without a whiff of error having to attach itself." End quote. Curiously, the very next entry on All Souls Day, November 2nd, merely informs the reader of its traditional observance without approving it, since that is even for Lura too close to the Catholic teaching on purgatory. To conclude now, it is extraordinary that in the same time frame, three Lutheran churchmen from different corners of Germany invested such immense effort in furnishing their fellow believers with evangelical hagiography, and yet employed such different principles, drew such different conclusions, and endorsed such different personages for commemoration. All of them paid close attention to historic calendars, both of Lutheranism and from before the Reformation, not to mention contemporary Catholic calendars and the figures remembered in other Protestant bodies. Even Lura did, if only in order to dismiss them. Clearly, by the close of the 19th century, the felt need for evangelical hagiography had not gone away. With the dawn of the 20th century, that need would come roaring back stronger than ever, but that is a story for another day. But now, a closing irony. Fliedner took a ferociously Lutheran and Protestant-only approach to his calendar. Lura rejected the effort to update Lutheran calendars and kept to the pre-Reformation period. It was Pieper who best anticipated the direction Lutheran and Protestant hagiography would take in the next century, not to mention the ecumenical turn of ecclesiology across the board. And yet, Fliedner and Lura are the ones who ended up commemorated on Lutheran calendars in the years to come, but Pieper has been all but forgotten. Thank you. <laughs>